Good morning. Oh, the end of summer. What happened? Right? I feel like it was June, like, I don't know, yesterday. Anyway, that's fine. This has been, for sure, the hottest summer I have ever experienced. I lived in Halifax last summer. It was 25 degrees all the time. That is beautiful. (laughs) So I love you, but it's hot here. Um, Okay. Uh, My name is Dana, and um, I'm one of the pastors at Erickson Covenant Church. I wanted to just say a couple of things before I start. First of all, if you are visiting with us this morning, there is a little welcome card in the pocket of the seat in front of you. And if you would bring the welcome card to the window at the back here during coffee hour, we have a gift for you, and it's a pretty good present. So... It's worth the time to fill out the card if you're visiting. Um, I also wanted to just welcome my best friend, Susanna, is visiting, and I feel compelled to point her out every time. So she's right in the middle of this side here, um, and Susanna just took a new job as one of the vice presidents with Wycliffe Bible Translators Canada, and so... Um, we're going to be seeing her often because their head office is in Calgary, and uh, I'm really excited for the opportunities for us to partner with that ministry since now my best friend is their vice president. Okay. Also before that, they did great work all the time. Okay. Uh, My friends, we have spent the whole summer studying the letter to the Ephesians. Twelve weeks we've been studying this letter so far. Do you know what this week is? That's right. It is the last week in the book of Ephesians. In about 40 minutes, this series is going to be over, and you will know everything there is to know about Ephesians. Do you feel like that? I feel like that. (laughs) We know everything there is to know. Seriously, we have learned a lot together this summer. And if you're new with us, I just want to let you know we've been using these little booklets to follow along um, with the scripture. So Marg and Bob are going to, they're going to walk up and down the aisles. If you're new with us, don't be shy. Just raise your hand if you just lost your booklet, whatever it is. We want you to have one to follow along. Okay, so we got some people over here on this side. Bob, if you come down this side, we got a few. Um, they're going to get one for you. We want you to have it. Before we jump into the text, and while you're flagging your booklets, we're going to watch a short video together to help us remember the broader picture of Ephesians. Okay, so here's a video for us. The year 60 AD is a really hard time to be a Christian. There was persecution outside and fighting inside the church. And into that context, Paul writes Ephesians. It's a letter that lays out a worldview for believers, a way of understanding what's really going on. And the point of the letter is that God knows exactly what he's doing. He is enacting a plan to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. He's going to gather up all the broken, divided, forgotten people and reconcile them to himself through Jesus. It started when God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him 
in the heavenly places and put everything, everything we're afraid of, everything that has power over us, under his feet. And the church? Well, before we became believers, we were dead in the water. We were stuck, following the course of the world, following the ruler of the power of the air, following the desires of our flesh. We are being carried along by forces we can't even see. Ideas like individualism and consumerism, the drive to make money, being suspicious of a people group, or thinking you're only valuable if you look a certain way. We're all stuck in that current, and it's too powerful to swim against. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's like God reaches down and just plucks us out of the water. And more than just being with Jesus, we are his body. The church is so connected to Jesus, we can't be separated. The problem is there are a lot of divisions in the church. Theological differences, grudges, worship styles, racial divides, they all keep us cut off from one another. But how can a divided body model God's plan for reconciliation? It won't work. Paul says that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He is making one new humanity, reconciling both groups to God in one body. And when that happens, the church can accomplish God's plan. That's why it matters that we learn to love each other. It matters that you shake hands with a neighbor this morning or that you apologize or forgive your friend. It matters because the church is the body of Christ, a living example of God's cosmic plan. We are going to show the world that God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. And it's starting here with us. All right. Well, that video is highlighting the first half of the book of Ephesians, where Paul is outlining the worldview that believers need to have. And then in the second half of the letter that we've been studying the last few weeks, um, we've been receiving much more concrete teaching about how to think and act, how to discipline ourselves, how to treat other people. And in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking particularly at the relationships that form the household uh, and how those change as people become believers. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like this has been a powerful journey for us. When we started, I told you that I chose this series, I chose Ephesians, because I'm convinced that we as a body were longing to grow in faith, to become mature, to belong to one another. And I really believe that Ephesians offers us a path forward in that. And so as we jump into the text for today, let's try to hold that in mind. 
that this series was intended to teach us about maturity as believers and that God's ultimate plan is to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. That is, God is working to make us one. Now let's look at, we're at the very last page in our booklet. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. That's the scripture for today. And before I read it, I want to tell you, the very first word here is finally, as you can see. Yeah, finally, we're at the last, okay, that's not what I was going to say, but all right, fine. Um, (laughs) uh, Finally is one translation, but some of the commentators I read said a better translation of that word is henceforth. Now, henceforth is kind of, um, it's a bit of an antiquated word. I have literally never said henceforth anything. Um, But I think it's helpful because it has the sense of like, from this point forward, this is what you should do. And finally, it doesn't quite have that, sort of. But finally, it feels like the end. But henceforth gives us the idea that given all that we've learned, from now forward, this is how it's going to be. So that's how we're going to start. Let's read this together. Well, by together, I mean I'll read it, and you can just listen to me. Okay. Uh, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, put on the breastplate of righteousness, as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times, in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. So that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing, Tychicus will tell you everything. He is a dear brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. Peace be to the whole community and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. The first thing I notice in verses 10 and 11 is the duality of God's role and our role. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. And then he says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand. And so the strength is the Lord's, and the armor is God's, the power is God's, but at the same time, we have to put it on. 
we have to stand. It's a both and kind of situation. We can't be fooled into thinking that we do this all by ourselves. But we also can't be fooled into thinking that we don't have to participate at all. Verse 10 tells us, we, is that right? Hmm. Verse 11 tells us that we need to stand against the wiles of the devil. Do you ever say that? The wiles of the devil? What does that mean? The wiles of the devil. Okay, um, here's the thing. When I was growing up, I grew up in the United Church, and I never heard anyone talk about the devil, ever. We never talked about it. But I went to Catholic school, which made for kind of a confusing childhood. And so, yeah, and, and we talked about the devil at Catholic school. And so one day I remember literally my six-year-old friends asking me, what is the difference between my religion and her religion? And I said, well, we believe a lot of the same things, but we do not believe in the devil or hell. Which is not true, by the way. That's not true of what the Catholic Church believes. It was just my best six-year-old guess at interpreting the differences. That I just, I didn't learn about it. On the other hand, when I was 22, I was working at a summer camp that would bring in teachers, a new teacher every week. And the teachers came from uh, different theological perspectives. And so one week we had a teacher Uh, And in the early training, she started handing out um, these little tracks that the cabin leaders were supposed to give to their kids. And the tracks were a series of terrifying pictures of demons, like, lurking in the bushes and under cars, waiting to jump out and sink their claws into unsuspecting and, I presume, unchristian children. Okay. I continue to this day to be horrified by that kind of evangelism. We cannot use the devil to scare children into making a commitment to Jesus. That is not the way to come to faith. But here in this passage, Paul tells us we also cannot underestimate the strength of the enemy who is opposing the church. If we do, we're going to end up in a battle unprepared, and we're going to be defeated really quickly. There is an enemy out there, and we're going to face real opposition. But it's not the enemy we usually think. Paul says, for our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We usually struggle against who? People, right? People who don't think like us, people who don't act like us, people who rip us off or cheat us or cut in front of us in traffic, treat us badly. The vast majority of the time, we're struggling or fighting against people. I don't know if this happens to you. This happens to me. Do you have this experience where you really show your worst self to your family or the people who care about you the most? Do you have this experience where it's so much worse, so much more painful when someone in your family betrays you or hurts you than if it's a stranger? I hope that's not just me. Okay. Uh, I think it's true in the body of Christ as well. We tend to fight harder 
and be more offended and more hurt when we're fighting people who are part of the same church. Because usually we think that they should be like us, believe what we believe. And so most of the time we find ourselves struggling against people. And sometimes we're able to pull back to a place where we're not quite struggling against people, individuals, but we're struggling against whole groups or ways of thought or systems or structures. You know, like we're struggling against consumerism or governments or power structures. And truthfully, that's how I have most often understood this idea of powers, authorities, rulers. But I was really challenged this week. I was reading uh, John Stott's commentary. John Stott is a very prominent evangelical. And um, he says, we shouldn't deify structures. And that makes sense to me, right? We shouldn't hold them up or glorify them or think that they're going to save us. But also, he says, we shouldn't demonize them. We shouldn't assume that they are all bad. We're not fighting blood and flesh people, nor are we fighting institutions, companies, political parties. Rather, we're struggling against an actual demonic, like actual demonic forces that are attacking the witness of the unity of the church. Now, I sat with that for a long time. It's not my favorite thing to consider demonic forces because sometimes that sounds like a sci-fi movie, right? It makes me feel like a little bit foolish to talk about it even though I know it's real. But the powers of darkness are cunning and wicked and strong, and their aim is to upset God's plan to reconcile all things to himself. Their goal is to put up barriers between us and to rebuild the dividing wall of hostility in the church. Unity in, among believers isn't just hard because we're all so different. It's also hard because there are actually forces out there working against it, making us think that we can't possibly belong together. I was talking with a member of the leadership team about this, and he said, yeah, it's like when people are cheering for different sports teams and you think, well, I probably can't be friends with that guy. My dad, Mike, is a diehard Leafs fan. Any Leafs fans? We're a little far west for that. Oh, one! That's so nice. Okay, here's a picture of my dad. It's coming right now. You will notice that he is wearing a Maple Leaf sweatshirt. He is building a Lego model of an NHL Maple Leafs team that I got him for Christmas. And if you look really carefully right behind his shoulder, there is a little Maple Leafs ornament on our Christmas tree. Yeah. And I will tell you, it really does get his back up if somebody insults the Leafs. And he has met more people at weird places because he's wearing a Leafs t-shirt. Fans can just see each other, right? But he gets mad if somebody insists on cheering for the Ottawa Senators like my cousins do because they live in Ottawa. And we can all relate to that example, right? And that is a totally silly and surface level example. Like it literally does not matter which sports team you cheer for, although some of you are upset with me now, aren't you? 
Interesting. Okay. But I think you can probably figure out how to set that aside for the sake of the gospel. But what about when someone believes really different things about the roles of men and women in the body of Christ? Can I, a woman who has a leadership gift and a strong call to ministry, find unity with another believer who thinks that women should not speak in church? What about Christians who fall on opposite ends of the political spectrum? We're being invited to consider that in real time because there's so many things in the world right now that we respond to out of our political convictions. Can someone who falls far left of center find unity with another believer who falls far right? Well, it's harder than a sports team, isn't it? You get two or three steps into those conversations and you start to wonder, maybe I can't go to this church anymore. Maybe I've got to find some people who are more like me, think the way I think. I'm really familiar with those thoughts. You know, pastors and ministry leaders, we're not immune to those kinds of feelings. The covenant denomination really values freedom in Christ. I am new to the covenant this year. But one of the unique things about us as a denomination is that covenant churches will baptize infants and adults. Even though we acknowledge that within our family of churches, there are strong differences of opinions about that. For 120 years, more than that, this denomination has decided we will not divide over that issue. We can find unity together. Paul uses the word stand four times in these opening verses. In verse 11, he says, be able to stand. In verse 13, be able to withstand on that evil day and later be able to stand firm. And then in verse 14, stand therefore. So, okay. Stand for what? Stand firm in God's plan. Stand firm in the reality that we have been made one new humanity, that both groups have been reconciled to God in one body, that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between us, because that is the mystery of God's plan. That's the reconciliation that he is demonstrating through the church here. And so that unity, that oneness, is exactly the thing that the devil is going to do everything he can do to tear apart. My best friend, Susanna, I introduced her before. She's here visiting this week. And she and I were talking about this idea that evil forces are working hard to dismantle unity among believers. And I realized in that conversation, one of, one of the lies that I have been believing for years, which is that if other people just had access to the real information, if they could just see what I've seen, they would certainly agree with me. I honestly cannot understand how I have never confronted this in myself before, except that it's a pretty powerful um, idea, and it's disguised 
to look like I'm thinking the best of someone else, isn't it? You know, what I'm saying to myself is, I know they have good intentions. They're just ill-informed. If I can help them see clearly, they'll agree with me. But here's the problem. It doesn't always work like that. Sometimes people really do look at the exact same set of facts and they have a different opinion about how to interpret them. They think different. Even opposing actions might be called for. And even if we have all the information in the world, not all believers are going to agree about everything. We might not even agree about things that feel really important to us. So, can I actually find unity with someone who does not agree with me about my deeply held convictions? Yes. Yes. And that is the central message of Ephesians. Nothing we've studied matters if we don't take this in. We belong together. Under Christ, we are one body. The dividing wall of hostility is broken down. Now, I'm not pretending, right? Living in unity is incredibly hard. Remember last week Tom was talking about um, how healthy marriages are marked by spouses who are great friends and have good fights, right? Anybody put that into practice this week? Yes, way to go. Oh, some good fights. We had some good fights. Okay, well, that applies to all of us as brothers and sisters in the church as well, right? Our church family is not exempt from that call. We need to be good friends. We need to have fun, to share time together, to enjoy one another with people who think differently than us. Absolutely. And we need to have some good, healthy fights. Seriously. I mean, not dirty fighting, right? Not criticism or defensiveness or contempt or stonewalling like we learned about last week, but coming to talk face-to-face, learning about another perspective, arguing and wrestling as we seek God's will, respecting differences of opinions. If we don't ever fight, we are only ever going to have fake peace and fake unity. So we are going to have to embrace disagreement. And we're going to have to practice mutual submission, just like we do in marriages. You know, two weeks ago in my message, I said some things that some people found really concerning and upsetting. And I'm so glad that those people were willing to come to me. We were able to meet together. We had some very rich conversation and learn about one another's hearts and perspectives and values. And we were, I think, able to defend our belonging in the same body. Even if it wasn't totally comfortable for either one of us, that was an extremely healthy way to handle disagreement. It was a good fight. You know, that's a gold star on the fighting chart. Maybe we should have one. I don't know. If we fight people, Paul says, flesh and blood, we will end up rebuilding the dividing wall of hostility. We will end up splitting churches. And we see the consequences of that all the time. 
And so instead, we are invited to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this week, we're invited to take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand evil on that day. And having done everything to stand firm, remember that means taking up this whole armor so that we can withstand the wiles of the devil who would like to put that wall back up between us. We have to arm ourselves to fight for the unity and belonging that Christ has established. So what's going to help us do that? Let's look at the armor together. First of all, we put on the belt of truth. Now the belt, I mean, there's a belt on there, but actually you can't really see it because the belt would be worn underneath the rest of the armor. It's, it's like this thing that, this is a little bit awkward, that gathers up all of their robes um, between their legs so that they can run. <laughs> so, I mean, useful, but I don't really want to demonstrate it. Um, <clears throat> okay. That's too bad. Uh, good. Some people, if, anyway, it makes them free to really run in battle. That's the thing. And so some people have understood truth to mean solid doctrine or the truth of scripture. And others have understood it to mean truth of heart, like sincerity or integrity. And I think we need both. It doesn't work to have a weak understanding of scripture. And it doesn't work to somehow slip into hypocrisy or scheming. Right? We need both in truth. And then the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate would cover the soldiers front and back and come under their arms and protect all their vital organs. So that is the best and the closest defense. Often in scripture, righteousness is about the justification and forgiveness of God that makes us righteous in his eyes. Sometimes it's also about our good character. And again, I think, good, we need both. A scholar named Finley says, the completeness of pardon for past offense and the integrity of character are woven together into an impenetrable mouth. And so that's what makes up the chain link of the breastplate. Now, I love this next image. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. What I like is how ambiguous that statement is, right? Get yourself whatever kind of shoes you need. (laughs) Some people lean towards staying where they are, right? They prefer to stay put. They're afraid or unwilling to go out. Those people probably need to lace up some running shoes. But some people run every chance they get. They can't stay put. And so they might need something more like crampons. Do you know what these are? They're like, oh, uh, can you put those shoes? Yeah, there we go. Okay, here they are. They're like this, this like extra sole that's just big giant metal spikes that lace onto the bottom of your shoes so that you can go rock climbing in the ice. And you can like jam your feet into the ice. And I think if you're a person who is prone to running when things get hard, you might need that kind of shoe. So you can just Get yourself stable and settled where you are. So, you know yourself. Whatever you need, get that on your feet. The shield of faith. There were many different types of shields. I do not know them all. What I know is that the one we're talking about here is this long 
um, I don't know, oblong shape. And they say it's like 1.2 meters, which is like taller than me. Okay. Um, by 75, by 0.75 meters across. So I don't even really know what that is. But like, if it was here, you couldn't see me. And so it covers most of the soldier's body. And it's made of four different layers of material and designed to stop these arrows that were dipped in pitch and lit on fire. That was a real thing. I'm so glad that I, anyway, I never want to see that. Anyway, so these flaming arrows are coming at them and the the shield that covers the whole body is what would put those arrows out. The flaming arrows might be similar to the wiles of the devil that are coming at us. These are things that threaten to tear us apart, right? Things like self-centeredness or pride or bitterness or anger or things like poor self-image or anxiety or despair or fear. And the shield of faith is what puts those out. John Stott said, For faith lays hold of the promises of God in times of doubt and depression. And faith lays hold of the power of God in times of temptation. We can take hold of faith in God and hide behind him like a shield and extinguish those arrows. The helmet of salvation. The helmet was made of bronze or iron. Okay, I don't know a lot about metal, but I did accidentally a few months ago buy like a cast iron frying pan that is literally this big around. Like it takes me my whole body to lift it to the stove. I thought it was smaller. It looked smaller in the picture on the buy and sell. Anyway, so I bought this enormous, yeah, and you all know what this is like. You get there, you're too embarrassed to tell someone that's not what I thought I was buying. Okay, so now I have the biggest cast iron frying pan I've ever seen. The helmets were made of iron, and they were so heavy that they had this huge layer of cushion inside to make the weight bearable. And the only thing, the only thing that could split it was like a direct hit with an axe. Awesome. <laughs> our salvation is what protects our head like that. No matter what happens, we know that we have been saved. We are being saved, and that is secure, and it lets us hold our heads up high. And then finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the only piece of armor that can be used offensively as well as defensively, but it would be a very close fight offensively because it's a short little sword. Like, this is long, but that is incorrect. It's, It's supposed to be a short sword, and so... You would be in very close proximity with someone else if you were going to use that. We need to be ready with the word of God. We need to know the scriptures, to understand them, and learn how to use them. That's our best and only weapon to fight against the evil forces, the deep, deep knowledge of the word of God. Okay, now I kind of rushed through those, I know, so let me make a couple of broader comments about them. All the way through Ephesians, we have been talking about and working to remember that this letter is written to a whole community. So here today, too, we're not arming ourselves as individual people. We're arming 
the whole group, the whole body of believers. We are on the same side. And we're using the armor to defend the new family that God is building against evil forces who would tear it down, all the while welcoming new people into it. It's a really beautiful picture. Now, I want to pay special attention to two pieces of armor that I think are particularly relevant to us in this season. The first is the shoes that we put on our feet so that we can move out and bring the good news about Jesus' love to the whole world. If we are able to pay attention to the mission of God, to look to others, to move towards those who need to hear the gospel, we will end up going together. My mentor, Allison, used to use this analogy. She'd ask, do you ever wonder why people who spend a whole month together on a cruise ship never talk again in their whole lives? But people who serve on a warship stay in touch until the day they die? I mean, basically, in most ways, these are two pictures of the exact same thing, right? That is a giant boat with a few hundred people, or a few thousand, I don't know how big they are, a few hundred people, and they're going to live in extremely close quarters for a fixed amount of time on their way somewhere, and a lot of them are going to get seasick. The only difference is that on the cruise ship, the cruise ship is entirely self-centered, right? It's entirely about fun, and the warship is on a mission, She said, and I agree, that an external focus on mission is the only thing that keeps a faith community together. If we pay attention just to ourselves, our likes, our dislikes, our own fun, our community will fall apart. If we continually turn our attention to the mission of God, We will build stronger partnerships than we ever imagined as we work towards a common goal together. We come to find that we want the goal so much that we partner with people we didn't know we could. And we set aside differences we didn't know we could because we're going for that goal. So if we are going to live as one body, we have to pay attention to the mission. The second piece of armor I want us to learn about is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I was telling Susanna about the sermon over supper last night, and she said, okay, I understand that you're trying to help people know how they can remain in the body with people they disagree with, but how does that not just turn into relativism? Like, how does it not just become you do you and I'll do me and we'll just let that be whatever it is? Now, I find it incredibly annoying when your best friend pokes a giant hole in your sermon 18 hours before you have to deliver it. Right? Okay. So, welcome here. Yeah. Um, But I really do think that the Word of God helps us with that. As a body, we have to study the Scriptures together. I mean, we have to study on our own, too, of course. But we must come together as a community to learn and wrestle and carefully interpret the scripture. Because it's only then that we can submit to the word of God together 
It will shape us. It helps us learn in common. Being in a Bible study with other believers is even more important than showing up here on Sunday mornings. Although, don't get me wrong, I want you to show up here on Sunday morning, right? But, but I'm serious about this. We have a whole bunch of opportunities this fall for you to get around Scripture with groups of people, and I want you to do that more than I want you here on Sundays. Because here, you are, by and large, passive. I don't know if you noticed. You're kind of passive on Sunday mornings. You guys all just sit there and listen to me. Sometimes you don't even smile. Not today. Of course, today you're very smiley. But you're, by and large, very passive. And whoever stands up here, we just talk. That's fine. But I want you to learn how to study how to learn together with other believers, how to teach people so that God's word can convict and rebuke and teach and instruct us together, give shape to our collective life. That way we won't succumb to relativism. We won't. We'll continue to submit our personal preferences and ideas to the community around the word of God. In the final verses of his letter, Paul asks the hearers, who are us, to pray. He asks us to pray in the Spirit at all times, to pray for all the saints who are all the believers. And I think, I think that these prayers can be the same ones we learned when we were studying chapter 1 of Ephesians, which was to pray for wisdom and revelation and knowledge of God's power. So Paul asks us to pray those things for all the believers. And then he asks us to pray for himself. And I think today maybe we could say to pray for all the church leaders, for boldness as they teach, as they make known the mystery of the gospel. The mystery At the end, at the very end of the letter, we're right back at the beginning. The mystery is that God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. The mystery is that we are going to belong together. And that is going to be considered a miracle. Paul promises that Tychicus is going to give them more news about how Paul is doing and encourage them. And I just wanted to say, I'm sorry that last week or two weeks ago, I said it was Silas who was delivering this letter. That was just my mistake. It's clearly Tychicus. He's named right here. Um, It's such a simple thing at the end, but so powerful to name them. These guys are real people. You know, these guys that we read about. And after this letter was read, Tychicus and Onesimus, they're going to all sit down with the believers and tell a bunch of stories about how Paul's doing, who he's writing to, about the Roman soldiers who are chained to his wrist, who keep becoming believers, about the journey that they've had. That's going to be a fun time together because they're friends. And then finally, Paul prays for peace. He prays peace and love and faith for the Ephesian community. And for us as well, 
He's given them a whole cosmology, a way of understanding the world as believers, and then he's given them lots of concrete instructions for communal life. And then today he's given them an exhortation to arm themselves and be ready to defend the unity and peace they've been given. And then he prays for peace and for love and for faith. He does not pray for an absence of conflict, but for a deep and hard-won brotherhood and belonging in Jesus. Friends, God is indeed reconciling all things to himself through Christ. And he is using us to demonstrate that work. My prayer is that it may be so among us. So would you stand and receive a blessing this morning? People of God, go forth from this place empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill your high calling as servants and witnesses of Jesus Christ. And now may the risen Christ go with you, above you to watch over you, beside you to befriend you, within you to empower you, and in front of you to show you the way. Amen.